Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean. I'm your host. I write a blog called Unpickled. You'll find it at unpickledblog.com. I'm a person in recovery for over six years. I have been living my life without alcohol after a couple decades of uh, living it very much with alcohol as my crutch and my my uh, secret to success, I thought. <laughs> uh, it was my coping skill. And, uh, and uh, it turned out to not to be such a good one. So I've been uh, trying to share my story for these last years um, of what I go through. And, and as a person in recovery in the bubble hour is where I invite others to come and, and talk about their experiences as well. It's just me on this episode. Um, and I, I'm been through a lot this month, so I wanted to just share a little bit with you about what's been going on, and um, you'll know from the title that it's grief, so obviously someone close to me passed away. My dad died last month, and um, not only was his death difficult, but as many of you will know, like, you know, death often doesn't come easy. Uh, He was sick for a long time first, so going through those last few weeks of his illness was tough and and surprisingly difficult after he died, and um, I wanted to just take a minute to just kind of reflect on sobriety through these times because a lot of us go through this. Well, okay, all of us are going to eventually lose our parents unless, um, you know, unless we go first. And um, the natural order is for us all to lose our parents. So I know many of you have been through this and many of you are going through it now as, as I have been. And for some of you, it's on the horizon. And not only that, but, you know, we we are all likely to lose our parents eventually, but death comes in different ways in, in different times and places in our life. And um, sometimes our life feels booby-trapped, you know? As a person in sobriety, it's like we just get these things kind of jump up at us, these life events that are always going to be there. But all of a sudden we realize that they they represent a threat to our sobriety. So, I mean, it's not just losing someone. Someone, it's like, sometimes it's like you go to get the mail and there's a wedding invitation and you're like, oh, great, like threat to sobriety, which it doesn't have to be, but it can feel like it. Or, you know, um, financial difficulties or health problems or these things, they come at us and they're real and the struggle is real. And there are tried and true ways to get through them. And, and so that's just what I wanted to share with you. Um, I don't want to do a ton of navel-gazing here because I think the beauty of talking about grief is really in the Me Too experience. And um, therefore, I'm going to read to you some of the powerful things that people have written to me, not only in the wake of my loss, but also just over the years randomly. People have written some really powerful things about uh, how grief has shaped their addiction and for some has shaped their recovery. And I would like to share that with you. I also want to say that I was taken aback by the power that, that um, grief had in my life. My dad's death was not a surprise. He was sick for a long time. I had kind of a strained relationship at times with my dad. And um, so I like, I'll be honest, I didn't think I would even cry at his funeral, but I did. Um, I thought I had done all the grieving ahead of time, to be honest with you, because um, my dad's illness was one of those ones that takes them away from you bit by bit. And it was a 
of relief in many ways when he died, but there is still uh, the grief is a powerful emotion. And I, I was really surprised. I spent the last month feeling like I was sort of walking through waist deep sludge. And I knew I just had to keep going. I knew I would get through it. And a lot of the reason I knew that was from things that other people had, had written and had shared. So I'm going to read some of these to you now. Um, the first one I want to read is from a writer who writes the blog, Taking a New Path. Uh, she goes by the pen name Primrose. She says, Jean, thank you for opening your heart to us. I believe too, that the recovery lessons you've learned will stand you in good stead as you live through these days. I didn't drink the night my father died either. Since then, it has been a touchstone for me. How could I justify drinking over a lesser life event when I didn't drink then? For me, that is still an unexpected gift of that darkest day. Sending love, sober blankets, and hot chocolate, prim. A writer, a, a reader of my blog named Susie um, commented on this when I had posted I was going to take a month off after my dad died. Uh, she wrote, Susie wrote, my heart sincerely goes out to you. You expressed it so well when you said that you needed to fill up again. This is why I took a break, by the way, was that I just felt like I had nothing to give anyone else right now, not on that bubble hour, not on my blog. I just was empty. So I needed some time to fill up. So she says, yeah, you need that time to fill up again. I lost my little Karen Terrier in August. He died suddenly in my arms. He was with me for 18 years. No, not like losing a dad or mom, but to me it was. Unlike you, I did start drinking again after two weeks of being without him. I got champagne and I drank the whole bottle. It tasted weird. I've been back and forth with this stopping and starting, but nothing like before. Uh, she goes on a little bit uh, and says, um, one thing I've learned is that if I do drink, the tears can really flow. Not drinking one is more stable and able to deal with life more intelligently. Hmm. So here's someone who did drink because of her grief, and now she can't get back to sobriety again, right? And I think we feel justified sometimes in it. Like, yeah, this is a this is a sincerely good reason to drink. Like, this effing sucks, and I'm hurting, and I don't want to feel this way anymore. And, you know, I, I've said before that we all kind of carry those, like, secret reasons. Like, well, this is, these are the things I think would be bad enough for me to drink again. And... Um, uh, and we have to really challenge those. We have to really look inside ourselves and make sure we don't have any of those because we, if we want to stay sober, then we don't drink no matter what. That's it. That's how it goes. So um, Susie's letter is just a really good reminder that we need to stick with that and that there is nothing that we can't get through sober because, um, man, it's hard to get back once you let it go. I want to share this letter from Anna. Um, and uh, she's been sober for five years, but she shares the experience of why she quit, and it had to do with someone else's grief. Anna writes, I quit for the hundredth and last time five years ago. My last drink was on August 1st, 2011. It was a cup of red wine, about the tenth drink for that day. My neighbor's husband had died, and she had family over that day. I thought at 10 p.m. I should pop over and pay my respects. I was talking to her, and I felt my mind 
split. Half of me was listening to her, and the other half was noticing the empty bottles of wine on her worktop left by the visitors. The beast part of my brain became obsessed about wanting some of that wine. I cut off from talking and listening to her and asked if I could have some. This woman just lost her husband. She told me to help myself with a wave of her hand, and this I did. And then the waves of self-disgust came over me, and this time I could not push them away. I was ashamed of myself in a way I don't think I had ever felt before. I went home and said to my husband, I am never drinking again. He didn't say anything. He'd heard it so often in the past, but I did. I stopped. I never picked up another drink, no matter how hard it became. And there were times when it was very hard. Lying next to my mother on her deathbed for three days with half a bottle of vodka in her bedside cabinet was one. Not to mention my son's wedding with champagne all over the table, my favorite drink. My 60th birthday, Christmases, New Year's, holidays, a cruise. I didn't go to program, but I read lots of books and blogs that helped tremendously. And now when that Elky voice pops up, I just say, no, you've had your share and a lot of other people's shares too. Love and support to everyone out there. That comes from Anna. So, wow, that's, that's pretty powerful that her bottom was really a lack of compassion for someone in front of her that was grieving and that it was more important for her to feed herself alcohol than to connect in that moment. And um, I have a lot of respect for her for, for recognizing that moment for what it was and that it gave her the gift of being present for her mother. Another letter that comes from Cleo who writes that um, she's only on day three when she wrote this not that long ago. Um, And uh, here's what I want to share with you about her because she's gone through something really hard and she's in early recovery. So Cleo writes, I made it through the night and yesterday amazingly. So today is my day three and I'm committed to making it through day three, but it's extremely difficult. I waver back and forth within minutes, multiple times an hour. Sometimes I tell myself it's okay in one hour, just to make it more than the next hour. Holding out for one more hour would still be an accomplishment. This helps, and I find I have the strength, or have to play the hour game again, or I hide, or I leave my house. Sadness is a huge trigger for me, too. Hence, I've been effed up almost every day, Since I found out that my mom was sick, cancer, she made it four months, four months of hell. I would find myself going into the parking garage late at night to drink or get high and then return to the hospital to sleep on the couch to be close to her and there if needed. She couldn't tell and I couldn't deal with my reality. And now it's been almost three years since the day she died and I've been screwed up every day ever since. Not always noticeably, just enough to numb my world. 34, she was my best friend. I feel the loss daily. So sadness and avoidance are so entwined with it. I totally get it. Okay. Cleo, you're on day three when you wrote this. It's been a little while, so I'm sending you some love and hoping that you are sticking with it and that... um, and that you're being present for your grief, even though you weren't able to be present for your mom. Cleo goes on to write this, and I love this. This is beautiful. 
One weird thing that has helped me, I've drawn a heart on myself with a fine Sharpie or a pen, and I put my day count inside that heart. It washes off in the shower the next day, and it's in a place that only I can see. But it's a reminder that I'm doing this for myself out of love. And the number helps me remember that today I'm on day three, and I'm proud of that tiny number three inside a heart on my body. I carry it with me so I can always look when I feel like giving in. And sometimes I sit and trace over and over that heart to remember why I'm doing this. Cleo, you take my breath away. Um, in December, uh, before any of this happened, I got this message. Jean, I've gotten to know you through the bubble hour and now on your blog, and I appreciate you so much. Thank you. I appreciate everybody on the bubble hour. I'm on day seven with alcohol, and I have a sober pen pal, and I've been listening to sober audios. And I've learned the importance of reaching out and building sober support, which is why I'm writing this today. My 31-year-old cousin died in a car wreck last Wednesday. It was a total shock. She was graduating college next week and getting married to probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. I know people tend to only remember the good about loved ones who have died, but she was truly a precious, sweet soul. It really hit me at her memorial, and I've cried buckets of tears since. More for her parents, sister, brothers, fiancé, but still it hurts. And it puts things into perspective that only death can. Yesterday was so hard. I'm exhausted. I would normally try to do it all away when I got home. You know, all the mom and wife stuff. <clears throat> or I would drink wine. But instead, I got under the covers in my bed and cried some more and talked to my husband and wrote about what she meant to me. I told my husband I needed space and that he would need to go get dinner. And I also reminded him that I was in no state to drive to the store because even though I'm not craving, I know my brain and my brain wants to be numb right now. And I may make the decision in a moment of grief to say, screw it. I deserve it. My husband died just died. And I'm sure all my other family members are drinking at their homes. I can start over, you know, the voice, the drink now voice. And so here I am this morning. Over a week ago, I would have already been to the store to get wine, even at this early hour. I'm craving a little. It's not intense, but I'm craving some. It would only take a second for me to change my mind about this whole sobriety thing, and I'm scared. I know I can just get through it. I will not only be okay, I will be better. I just needed to say all that and hope that by saying it and reaching out, I will stay sober. Wendy wrote that, and I just, there's so many good, right things that she did there that, you know, when we're numbing and drinking, we still like, I'm fine. We say the I'm fine thing, and we go on and we do everything, and we're not fine. And then that's why we have to numb out and drink wine. But what she did was she said, I'm not fine. I need to cry some more. I'm not cooking dinner. And I'm not even going to go near the store because I don't trust myself. And that is a level of not only self-care, but self-advocacy that helps keep us sober when times get tough. So, Wendy, I'm sorry about your cousin. And I, I hope that the healing is, is starting to come for you. And, and um, my heart really goes out to you. Uh, Sunflower sent me this message uh, a while back also. And she wrote that 
she said, my parents' back-to-back -back illnesses and deaths are what plunged me into my final stretch of major drinking. It is a tough, tough time, and believe me, drinking made it much worse. So I want to thank you, Sunflower, for that comment you sent back in the fall because that really helped me through this. And I want to just echo it out to anyone else. You know, put it in your pocket for when when this part of your life comes up and when your parents are sick or when when you're in that stage of caregiving for someone you love. Just remember that drinking will make it worse and, and uh, will amplify it. And the last one I want to read to you, oh, there's a couple more, uh, Sasha, who's 38 and writes that she was 38, never big on drinking until last year when I lost my fiance due to cancer. All kinds of grief and stress followed after that, and I found drinking to be a coping mechanism. A few months later, I found a male companion to comfort me who also enjoyed drinking every day, and soon it became my favorite pastime. And all the people who were there for me during my loss, I pushed them away because I didn't want to be judged by them. I kept telling myself as long as I'm getting up and going to work every day and handling my business, there's no problem. And then she goes on to sort of talk about what their drinking life started to look like, which was, you know, clearly problematic, uh, drinking like from dawn till dusk on the weekends, um, drinking vodka straight, um, having falls, having car accidents, like a lot of red flags that they were ignoring. And, um, and it was uh, one last long night of drinking on a Sunday night on the anniversary of her fiance's death where they both woke up, her and her uh, boyfriend woke up so hungover and sick and the boyfriend had gotten in a fight the night before and she was too sick to go to work. And uh, she says, I woke up and he and I had the talk that we're messing up and we need to get our lives together. And he agreed and we decided to give up alcohol. Yesterday was my first day without a drink in a year, his first time in at least four years. I'm not sure how this is going to play out, but I pray we can get through it. So um, I read that because I just wanted to remind us of where grief can take us, that alcohol is not a good antidote to grief. Um, in fact, it's really, um, it amplifies it and morphs it into something else. And then a couple of beautiful hopeful letters to share with you. Terry writes, a year ago we said our last goodbyes to my beautiful dad and it was gut-wrenchingly sad and hard but now I'm so thankful that I was totally present for those weeks and days and that I was lucky enough to spend precious weeks with him holding his hand telling him I loved him right till the end. I decided to do the year without drinking two months before he died and I'm so glad I did. Now I'm just over 13 months. So there you go. It gives us the power to be present and to be of service. And even though it's hard, it's really hard. I believe that we get through it faster when we experience it kind of wholeheartedly. Uh, the last message I want to read to you comes from Kama, who writes, I'm crying right now after reading your last post. Last December, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. I was sober only 14 months. Six months later, my father was gone. He died on June 23rd at 9.07 p.m., and I was there holding his hand. It was the hardest thing I've ever experienced, but by the grace of God, I was able to stay sober. I wanted to run. I wanted to avoid. I wanted to check out. 
and I knew in my heart that was no longer an option. We can get through these excruciatingly painful experiences sober. Thank you for sharing. You're in my thoughts and in my prayers. So thanks to all of you for writing those things. And I guess, you know, we just we hear that me too again and again and again. And and in the, for those who shared how grief worsened their addiction or kicked off their addiction or caused them to relapse, um, that's a gift in itself too because, you know what, because you shared it, I don't need to go experiencing it to know that it's real. Um, I did want to drink when my dad died. I'm not going to lie. I definitely thought about it that night. Um, he was he was sick for a month. Uh, he's been sick for a long, long time, but he was in the hospital for the last month, and, and we were taking turns around the clock um, sitting with him, my family and I. And uh, so it's it pretty long and exhausting. And on the last day, we kind of decided to take him off his IV. And so we knew that he would be dying very quickly within the next day or two. And so we all kind of stayed near. And, um, uh, but we uh, all agreed too that we had given so much that we could use that last day with him to just do what we needed to do and that no one should feel guilty about leaving when they were ready to leave. And um, so my mom, believe it or not, was the first to go. She said all her goodbyes and she was ready to just go home and, and, um, and, uh, and leave us there with him because she was exhausted herself. Uh, and then one by one, my sisters left and I was the last one there by choice and not because I'm, uh, uh, more uh, close to my dad, certainly not. I think it was because I had had, had maybe some more complicated problems with my dad. Um, we butted heads a lot in the last 10 years. He, I think his dementia really contributed to some of the personal problems he and I had. And so I think it was harder for me to say goodbye because I had some unfinished business. So like I say, I kept thinking, you know what, I'd love to go home and drink right now. And I thought, as long as I'm feeling that way, I'm going to stay right where I am. And so what I did in that moment was I, instead of trying to numb out of the moment, I kind of leaned into the moment. And I was like, you know, I'm, this is a, this is an experience that I won't have too often in my life, just sharing the last moments of someone's life with them. And so I dimmed the lights and and I pulled a chair up by my dad and I just started singing to him. I felt silly sitting in the hospital singing, but I don't think I was bothering anyone. And um, I just sang some of the songs that he had taught me when he was teaching me to play guitar as a teenager, Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson. And, and I started to realize that it wasn't him that I was giving this moment to, but rather that I was creating a really lovely memory for myself and that, um, I was giving myself something in that moment. And um, I kind of decided to leave. I, I, I uh, at that point, was able to go. And I got the feeling, I know some people really want to stay and be there to hold that person's hand while they go, but I really started to get the feeling that my dad was hanging in there waiting for me to leave because uh, he wanted to do this by himself. He wasn't communicative. He was in a coma. But I just I just got this little imperceptible flicker of him telling me to go just I don't know how but so I left and um, and he passed away shortly after that but the power for me 
was in being present in that moment and giving myself the gift of a beautiful experience versus going home and checking out with a drink. And, um, and that was, that was when I knew I could get through anything. Um, my, that was the hardest day I would say. And then in the months that followed, other things that really helped me were just getting outside. Thank God it was spring, so I could start to get outside a little bit. Um, I'm not going to lie. I took comfort in food. I ate a lot. I ate ice cream. I could eat chocolate. I ate anything I wanted. Um, Now it's been a month, and I've sort of decided, okay, you know what? That's a coping skill that I don't need now. I'm starting to feel my grief lessen. I maybe don't need to be continuing on much as I love my food. So I'm trying to to step back from that. I was vigilant with vitamins. Um, Everyone else in my family got quite sick during this time and I stayed healthy. I believe it was from taking vitamins. I think that helped. I slept as much as I could. I sought out, I forced myself to seek out extra time with my kids and my grandkids. Um, I gave myself space. I took a a break from this show and from writing because, like I said, I was empty. I had nothing to give, and um, I just needed a little time to start to build myself back up again so that I could return to um, service. And finally, the last thing that was really healing for me, extremely healing, was um, that I uh, was the one who offered to write the obituary and the eulogy, and then I created a slideshow for his funeral. And that was extremely cathartic. I spent three days at my computer bawling. Also helped to erase the sadness of not only the last few months of watching him become so, you know, different. Um, He was really physically altered by his disease. And and I needed to etch-a-sketch that memory out of my brain a little bit because it was I really wanted to remember him as like this big guy that he used to be. And so going through all those old photos and seeing pictures of him laughing and, you know, it really helped to reframe his life for me because the last 10 years have really been about illness and conflict and anger. And, um, and this helped put some of that in perspective. And then the most important thing that helped was reaching out to other people. And I guess it wasn't that I reached out. It was that I accepted the comfort that so many people offered me. And people are so kind. So I really made sure that um, my instinct, when, when you're sad and someone says, I'm so sorry for your loss or for whatever terrible thing has just happened to you, I think our instinct is to like put up a wall so we stay strong and don't cry in that moment. And I instead really tried to look that person in the eye and just pause for a minute and say thank you and tried to feel their kindness enter me, I guess. (laughs) Sounds a little kooky, but I really tried to absorb their kindness because it really helped. And so, again, I was being present in that moment of someone being kind to me and and offering me their sympathy. Um, I really tried to receive it. And I I guess that's something new for me. I think recovery has allowed me to feel safe enough to accept that. And I sort of feel like maybe that's what separates us when we're sick, when we're in addiction, when we're in maladaptive coping skills from people that are generally healthy, is that we're 
putting barriers up all around us and refusing to feel our feelings or acknowledge other people's feelings or just be real, be in the moment. We're always trying to get the hell out of the moment. Um, recovery has taught me it's okay. It's safe to stay in the moment. And so when someone is being kind to me and I stay with them and I receive it, I get a little bit better. And um, so to anyone who reached out, thank you. Um, and just an encouragement to um, don't be shy when there's people in your life that are hurting to just jot them a note, send them an email, send them a text and just say, I'm thinking of you. And um, uh, I've been praying for you. We're sometimes shy about saying that, but, you know, I've been sending up good thoughts for you. Um, say those things, reach out to other people. And even if they're not in a place where they can receive them, know that if there's a crack, your sunshine might get in there. And um, um, a squeeze of the hand, you know, can really connect us. Um, Finally, I just want to share this powerful insight that came to me via an email from my cousin Catherine in Sydney. Um, She is just a brilliant girl. Um, She's a writer, and she writes a blog that I highly encourage you to check out. She calls it her happiness blog, um, katherinegreer.com.au. And um, she participated in a book as well. She co-authored a book uh, called Choosing Happiness. And she's just brilliant and wise and beautiful. And she wrote a really kind letter to me and um, that reminded me um, some lovely things about my dad and also took note of the fact, you know, a lot of us have trouble with our dad sometimes too. And so she kind of reflected on that and then she wrote this. She wrote, our fathers make us who we are. You are beautiful and loved and have a good life. I am beautiful and loved and have a good life. We get to choose what we'll keep and we throw away and what we throw away and life goes on. And those words resonated with me so much. Choose what to keep. And as I was doing my dad's PowerPoint pictures and his eulogy, I was really nervous to write his eulogy because I was afraid. I I kept thinking, I'm not going to speak at his funeral because I'm not going to just get up there and be all fake and say he was perfect and, you know, I don't, I know better and I'm not going to do that. I got to be honest. And, um, but when it came time to write his eulogy, I asked someone else to read it and I wrote it for them. And, um, and I didn't find that I was sugarcoating the truth at all because I just kept hearing Catherine's words, choose what to keep. And as I looked through the pictures and looked through his life, and I knew there was a lot of good things to keep. And as I started to bring those out and write those stories about, you know, his childhood antics and his life as a young man in the military and his accomplishments in life, it really helped me start to see that the difficulties that I had with him were really just the last chapter of his life. There were some sort of unhealthy things you know, ways of communicating that were sort of woven through our earlier years. But by and large, it was a good life and it was a good relationship and that that I could choose to keep the good without um, pretending the bad never happened. I just don't have to keep digging it up. You know, I can acknowledge it and release it. And I can hold with gratitude the things that made me who I am and um, and who I choose to be. 
and who I choose to remember him as. So finally, I, I guess what I want to share is that in the very moment, I wasn't with my dad when he passed. As I said, I, I started to feel like he wanted me to leave. So I went home and I crawled into bed and I slept for a few hours. It was probably about 11 o'clock at night. And um, two hours later, the phone rang and it was the hospital saying he had passed away and, um, and that we could come back and pay our respects if we wished. So I picked up the phone and called all the rest of my family, my sisters and my mom. And the four of us went down there together and walked in the room together. And the moment that I walked in that room, I could feel the most powerful awareness that the difficulties that had been my reality and my present for the last decade were no longer. And that I was released from them and he was released from them and that they were one of many chapters of a life that contained a lot of other things. And it was just so wonderful to feel that freedom and to choose, to choose to keep. So even though I wasn't prepared for the grief, I also wasn't prepared for the freedom (laughs) and the excitement in a way, I guess, because now I also get to sort of establish a different kind of relationship with my mom. My dad's been sick for so long that my mom really didn't get any attention. And now I get lots of one-on-one time with her. And now we get to kind of spoil her in a way. And she's free to travel and she's free to do things that she couldn't do before. And so I'm excited to see how my relationship with her will change now that that dynamic has been released as well. And I just want to parallel that to drinking because we – when we quit drinking, a lot of us experience grief. I experienced powerful grief, and I know a lot of you did too because you've said it here on the show and you've written in, and, you know, it's a me too thing. Like grief is part of of sobriety, early sobriety, and it's really powerful and it's really surprising when it happens. And um, But it passes. And and there's also exciting things because as much as we miss alcohol, we start to realize, oh, my gosh, I can drive after like 7 o'clock at night again. And I can do all these things that I'd forgotten I was ever interested in because I had my blinders on that all I was interested in alcohol. So I sort of feel like there's a parallel there that, you know, the sadness, there's a, the, the flip side of the sadness is freedom and joy. And, and that's true for losing my dad in some ways. And it's true for recovery. Um, I guess I want to close with just this one memory um, of one of the little lessons from my dad. And um, I, I thought of it, you know, as I was writing his uh, his obituary and eulogy and all that, and I was starting to look back on those times. And I remembered that when I was 19, um, I was in my room crying over a boy who, by the way, I ended up marrying and I'm still married to now, like 30 years later, but uh, I was really sad at that point. I thought we had broken up or who knows what. And my dad came in and, and talked to me and, uh, and we were both sitting, I was sitting on the floor of my closet, like looking through a shoebox of like love letters or something like it was a really tragic teenage moment. And my dad sat on the floor with me and, you know, rubbed my back a little bit while I cried. And, and I had this cut on my hand. I'd, I don't know, I'd fall in or, um, I think it was at a party, to be honest, and that probably sounds about right. I had this kind of big gash on my hand 
<clears throat> so as he was rubbing my back, he kind of reached over and grabbed my hand and saw that I had this cut on it that was sort of starting to heal with a ugly looking scab. And, and he said, you know what, being sad, it's kind of like this cut on your hand. He said, um, you look at it and you think, man, that looks bad. That looks ugly. It hurts. It's never going to heal. Um, it's never going to be the same again. And it's going to take forever. And then, you know, a few days later, you look down and you realize that it's starting to look a little better. And then eventually you look and you see it's just a scar. And you think, man, that used to really hurt. And now it doesn't. And um, I still have a little mark on my hand that I think is from that gash. At least I pretend it's from that gash because I, I love that memory of my dad telling me that, that, you know, you look at it and you think that used to really hurt and now it doesn't. And um, I guess that's that's the message I want to leave you guys with is that whatever you're going through, whether it's grief or whether it's struggling to stay sober, um, it, it's hard, but it'll get better and you'll get through it and you'll get through it faster and with no regrets if you don't drink and you can eat and you can indulge yourself in other things that aren't mind altering um, but really take care of yourself and give yourself the gift of being present in the moment that you're in even if it's a difficult moment that you're in because I think you'll really um, be grateful for it down the road so I'm not supposed to give advice I try not to give advice um, so just like rewind that last 30 seconds and pretend I said it in some sort of passive form that didn't sound like advice. Um, but those are lessons learned. And um, I want to thank everyone who's written in and I want to thank you guys for being patient. Well, I took some time off. I've had a rotten 2017 so far. I broke my leg. I had to move with a broken leg into a new house and my computer crashed. So I've been dealing with transferring everything all over to a whole new system and losing my dad on top of all of that. Um, and I don't know what else. I think there might be a bad haircut in there or something. But seriously, you guys, we can get through the big things and we can get through the bad things. And the big or small, we are stronger together. We're stronger when we reach out and we're stronger sober. So that's it for me for today. I'll be back soon with uh, more guests and we'll be back to our usual bubble hour routine I am also getting pretty excited about the She Recovers in NYC that's coming up. And if you didn't get tickets, that's okay. There is live streaming available for it. You will find a link on my blog, unpickledblog.com. There's a link there for you to access live streaming. It's $79, I think, U.S. And that gives you access to the presentations from Glennon Doyle-Melton, Gabrielle Bernstein, Elizabeth Vargas, and Marianne Williamson, plus extra content for you. So check it out. And um, I hope I will either see you there or that we can connect um, over the next little while, either on my blog or through here. So that's it from the Bubble Hour. Everyone, it's good to be back. I've missed you, and um, there's more conversations ahead. Until next time, take good care. Not proud that that was me and when I face it, I take that 
Just want to be free. 